Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Don't be afraid to take a job, whatever the job is, to keep the dream going. I was a writer for Fred Rogan, for the Mouse Club, and I got into the Writers Guild. I got an agent. I figured, I got this figured out. I'm good. And obviously, my agent is looking for work for me, so I got this covered. This is fine. And then a year goes by (laughs) of not working. You're like, I got to. I got to pay the rent. I got to do something. And I ended up taking a job as an assistant writer. And it was a great experience because even being a writer's assistant, you're especially on comedy shows, you're exposed to the room. You're exposed to the process. It's great training. If you want to be a writer, to be a writer's assistant, be undeniable, be good. If you're supposed to be taking notes and if they throw out a joke and you don't have the joke written down, you're not making yourself a value to that executive producer into that process. So make sure if you're a PA on a show, be the best damn PA they've ever had. If you come in and you kick ass at no matter what the job is, you're going to get noticed and you're going to move up. So always be kicking ass. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. For all of you all over the United States, I wish you an amazing July 4th tonight and a special holiday weekend. And for those of you around the world, I just wish you a great day and a great weekend. (laughs) I hope all of you are well. For those of you first-timers, welcome. I hope you enjoy this as much as we do. And for those of you who've been here a lot, I am very, very grateful for you subscribing, listening, and passing it on to everyone you know. It means a lot. It really makes a difference. And because of you guys, we have a show that's making an impact. Thank you. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter. Please subscribe. do so on the youtube channel as well or facebook and leave me a message and i will get back to you as soon as i humanly can 
And today we got a great episode, part two of Scott Halleck. This guy is really incredible. A lot of insight into reality television, how to get to the next level, what to do to get there. And also has a lot of unique takes on the world of the specialty of prank television. And when I look at Scott Halleck, I think to myself of a guy who started from humble beginnings. I mean, how many people do you know in the entertainment business that grew up on a farm? Okay, a farm. So if ever you think to yourself, eh, I don't know if I can get to the next level in whatever profession I'm interested in. This guy grew up on a farm, okay, with cattle and pigs and chickens, with chores and udders. But he had a dream of what he wanted to do, and he went for it. And when he went to college and was able to get out of that town, he figured out a way to get involved in the entertainment business through his school. That's what moved him. So he decided to get a degree in broadcasting there. And he worked for four years and over 130 episodes as a writer, producer, performer on the school's half-hour live sketch comedy show. And guess what? It paid off. He won the College Emmy Award. And what happens is, once you get going and once you get recognition, then you get out of school and you have something to play on. You have something to get out in the world and your profession with. Something that means something. Even if you don't win the College Emmy, you have tons of experience. And if you gain tons more experience in college than most other people in that profession, you're going to get a hard look from anybody in the business. And you're going to get your shot. And just like Scott did. And then he started writing for Jay Leno as a young writer and working on Rogan's Heroes and then the new Mickey Mouse Club. And then he got the confidence to start going out with his own things and pitching his own shows. And yes, it took a little while, but he came up with something with the sci-fi network called Scare Tactics. And lo and behold, lightning in a bottle. Over a hundred episodes. But success isn't without difficulty. He had a partner. A partner that he worked with for a long time. Then something happened. Something happened like a marriage gone bad. And he had to break off that partnership. And he had to figure out how to settle that and move forward with lawyers and teams of people and long, long periods of time where you don't know what you're going to do. Are people in the town going to look at you the same way? What's going to happen? The unknown. But there's not a lot of unknown for Scott Halleck because he's on the verge of something really, really big happening, getting on the air, which I cannot talk about, and proving to himself that even with the ups, and the downs, he can move forward through all the adversity. And after going to his house and meeting his family and interviewing him, I personally can honestly say that one of the biggest reasons that Scott Halleck is successful is that he has an incredible 
supportive partner and his wife, Nicole. They've been married for almost 22 years, which in Hollywood is like 87 in dog years. And she's been with him from the beginning, the struggles, all the way till now, where they're doing really, really well. And I can tell you, there were times in the beginning of their relationship when Scott had doubts about whether he should even be in this business. But every time that came up, I can guarantee you that his wife was right there by his side. And all I can say is that in whatever you do, get out there and get going with what you want to do. Start figuring out a way to find that affiliation wherever you are and start working over and over again. Rinse, lather, repeat. Repetition. More and more, over and over again. So then when you're through with that, then people see that you're valuable. Whether you get recognition or not, you have it. You have the time put in. And then you start at the lowest level with the people that you think have potential in your gut Whatever your profession is, you can see something in those people that are ahead of you, that you're working with, that you want to work with. In his case, Jay Leno, Fred Rogan, Timberlake, Spears, Aguilera, Gosling. For you right now, find those people who aren't known now that you think are going to be known and you think are going to be stars in whatever profession you're in. Rally around at work move forward, learn from them, learn from the people running the shows, learn from the people doing things at the top. So that when you go out on your own, you create your own thing and you form your own company and you do your own projects, you know what you're doing. You have the examples of greatness. You've studied it and then you imitate it and then you become it. And then if possible, which is so difficult, and it's not predicated on success, but it certainly helps. In your relationships, try to find somebody who believes in you. Unconditional love, unconditional support, like Nicole. And I can guarantee you, if you can figure out how to have all these things in your life and act on them, I can guarantee you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that Scott Halleck has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. You mentioned earlier that you used to go into pitch meetings with Bruce Nash. Mm -hmm. And you learned a lot about how to pitch reality television. Now, in terms of pitching scripted television, there's many different ways to go. These days, there's people who go in, they pitch, they have a sizzle reel. It's like a trailer for their show they've already shot. Some people just go in with a piece of paper and pitch. 
and they're like Vin Scully. They can put the whole concept together and tell the person what the thing is. In reality, there's people who have sizzle reels. There's people who pitch the show and all the episodes. There's people like Jeff Aploff, who's a really esteemed a reality producer, has done so many different things. And his way of pitching, it's a circus. He has to set up two hours beforehand. He's got a popcorn machine, a marching band. He's got actors that he's hired to come in. There's people playing the game show in the thing. Everybody does it differently. But why don't you share with our audience the yellow and black book for dummies of how to pitch a reality show or hybrid show and sell it to a room full of executives. Oh, gosh, everyone's different. And back in the Bruce Nash days, I mean, he was such a good salesman and, and he's always delivered on what he sold. So he could go into, we used to joke that he could go into Mike Darnell, who was at Fox at the time, and say, Mike, I've got a new show. It's called Bird in the Hand. And Mike would go, great, I'll take 13 of them. And then he'd come back to us and go, guys, I sold a show. It's called Bird in the Hand. And we're like, what does that mean? And he's like, that's for you guys to figure out. <laughs> so, And Mike Darnell was the executive behind greenlighting American Idol. Yes. And Mike Darnell also greenlit a show that we pitched to him that was, to Mike's credit, he's got a producer's mind. He's more, much more TV producer than executive. And if you pitch him an idea and two sentences in, he gets it. He knows if it's a show or not right away. So we went in and pitched him a show that we were calling reunited. And the idea was we want to test whether we want to test if blood is thicker than water. If you were adopted at birth and eight people stood in front of you, all claiming to be your father or your mother, could you pick them out of a crowd? And he said, I, I love it. And I think jokingly in the meeting, we said, it's called, who's your daddy? And Mike laughed and he goes, yes. That, I mean, two sentences in, he said, yes, that's a show. And they ordered, I think, eight hours. We shot them. It's one of the best experiences I've ever had because we were meeting all these people who had been searching for their birth parents all their lives. And we were meeting birth parents who had been trying to find the kid they'd given up for adoption. We reunited so many people behind the scenes at, over the course of the show, probably, I don't know, eight to 10 times more people than who were on the show were actually reunited behind the scenes. And it was, it felt so good. And the stories were so heartwarming and so wonderful. And then as we have the show, we've been producing the show as reunited and Mike loves it so much and he comes and he watches the show and it is just what I said a, pers a person who was adopted at birth is has eight people put in front of them one of them is their father it's eight guys saying I'm your dad and they have to see if they can figure it out Mike loved the show so much the episodes turned out so great that he just he wanted to put it on the air and he kind of I think rushed it on the air because he thought the goodness of it would would break through. And at the same time they were launching and they launched it in January. So they were launching American Idol and, and I think house at the time and you know, all these shows, there was no promo space for us and it didn't launch as big as, as we had kind of hoped it would. Um, but it was, it was such a great experience doing that show and 
the goodness of the show was just not enough to break through and, and people didn't find it. And I remember getting the call from Mike Darnell the morning after it aired and he said, it didn't work. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it built, it built up to what would be an amazing rating these days and an amazing audience. I think in the last half hour of the show, it had like a 3.9 in the demo or something, which is unheard of these days. But since it started at a two, you know, the cum for the 90 minutes wasn't enough. Um, and so they, they, uh, I think aired one more episode and then sent the rest of the episodes to Fox reality. But that was one of those that was sold on a two sentences and Mike got it and we went into production. Tell our audience who are out there and eventually want to pitch a reality show to a studio or a network from cradle to grave. What kind of tools do they need? What's the formula remember early on the episode we talked about the formula for a master bedroom the formula for a film and television show the formula for a prank show what's the master formula for pitching a reality show what tools do you need what is going to give a reality creator the best chance of selling the show in the room in your opinion yeah of course it depends on the show right Um, prank shows we can you can pitch probably without a sizzle reel Um, if you have talent attached um, you have the talent in the room Um, I'm developing a couple of comedy shows with Wayne Brady and Jonathan Mangum right now Um, and we don't have a sizzle reel for those you know but what we have is Jonathan and Wayne's reputation as tremendous improvisers on whose line is it anyway and all that they do a live show where they tour around the nation so having them in the room goes a long way if you have a show that's talent dependent having the talent in the room is is a big deal if you're pitching a show that's kind of a docu follow like chris lee knows best or you know the real housewives or something like that it's probably helpful to have some of your characters on tape if you have if you've done some of the casting if you can have video of some of the characters you're purporting to want to put on this show that's going to help sell your show um it's hard to sell shows that are just high concept these days it's hard to do a who's your daddy anymore um and just have someone get it um i have a number of shows i'm doing with gen maynard at cbs studios um and one of them i did and gen maynard is one of the greatest reality executives of all time and he's back at cbs again yes i mean he put survivor on the air and big brother and amazing race and they're still on the air and um, Ken is a tremendous creative partner, and I'm doing a number of shows with him. One of them I sold with a sizzle reel. Um, the others were all just pitches. And Gen is another one of those guys who has a producer's mind where he can see the promo in his head, and he goes, yep, that's a show. I get it. Let's do it. And if it needs more development, he loves that process, too. He loves getting in there and developing it a little bit more. So I would say for, for people, if, if you've, if you're known like me for doing prank shows, you can probably go in and pitch another prank show and people know you can do it because you've done your 10,000 hours or whatever. Um, but if you are, if you have an idea for a prank show, but you haven't produced a prank show before, or you've been a lower level producer on a show, it's probably a good idea to team up with a production company that's done it before. And if they like the idea, then you've got the 800 pound gorilla in the room and you know, the, that'll give the buyer some comfort that they know this, this idea can be pulled off. 
So don't be afraid to every show is the show to get the show, right? So don't be afraid on your first couple of ideas to partner with established people. And if you like working with them, keep working with them. But if, um, if your intention is to be Mark Burnett one day, you know, learn what you can from this production company. And then, and then when you have an idea, when you've got enough, you know, uh, reputation built up and whatever, then go out and pitch your own things. And then, then maybe you'll be able to do it on your own without teaming up. Hence every show is the show to get the show. Yes. Every show, everyone. Take me way back to where you grew up and what it was like and what was the economic dynamic of the household and what was your first inspiration to getting into the prank business? Yeah, I didn't know about pranks for, for quite a while, but comedy was always something I was really interested in. And um, I grew up on a farm. We weren't farmers, but I grew up on 20 acres in Washington State. My dad was a textbook salesman, so he and Washington state was kind of his territory. So he'd travel all over the state selling math textbooks and science textbooks and all this stuff for, um, to all the different, uh, schools around the state. And my mom was involved in education. Um, she, uh, when my little sister, uh, was growing up and she was about preschool age, there wasn't a decent preschool around us cause we kind of lived out in the sticks. So my mom started a preschool. So, it was a very kind of normal middle class upbringing, I'd say. I absolutely loved growing up out in the middle of nowhere on 20 acres and, and uh, having all that room to roam and having, we did have cows and we did have pigs and we had dogs and we had cats. Um, but uh, it, it really taught me a work ethic, I think. Um, because there's things you have to do when you have animals and you have chores and you have responsibilities. We also heated our house by um, wood stove. So every summer we'd have to go out and get eight cords of wood. And for those who don't know how big a cord is, it's four feet by four feet by eight feet in a stack. That's one cord of wood. We'd have to get eight cords of wood from our property and bring it in in the summer. So it had time to dry before we needed it for the winter. Oh, I hated waking up on Saturday morning and hearing that chainsaw going in the distance. And I'm like, oh boy, I know what kind of day I'm going to have. Um, but it was a great upbringing. It was great. And my parents encouraged us. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and they always encouraged us to do creative things. And my mom and dad encouraged my brother and I to learn the Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first, when we were in elementary school. And they would have us, they would have like dinner parties and they go, hey, hey, boys, boys, come here. Why don't you do the, do who's on first? And so we would perform who's on first for my parents' friends. And they would, couldn't believe these two little kids knew this classic comedy routine. We ended up doing it in the elementary school talent show in front of the whole school. And uh, it was such a rush to get that laugh and to get that immediate feedback. And so I think that kind of started it. And going through high school, I was always in, I, I took acting classes and I wrote for the high school newspaper and I did, I did things like that, but I didn't get into my first, my acting teacher was encouraging me to audition for the school play, but I was, I was a sophomore in high school, I think. And I was scared and I was too scared to audition. And so I didn't audition. And so they're doing the play and one of the leads gets into trouble and gets kicked out of the play. And they come to me and they go, would you consider taking the part? 
And I'm like, okay. And so the first thing I acted in, I didn't have to audition, luckily, because I was too scared. But after that, I learned. And then I was like, okay, I think I can do this. Then I had the confidence to actually go and and audition. And so that was, those were all kind of the seeds that were planting the idea of entertainment and comedy and all that stuff. And I used to watch Saturday night live and I kept boil down tapes of all my favorite bits. I would tape with my VHS, you know, I'd tape Saturday night live every week. And then I had, I hooked up two VCRs together and I would basically dub off my favorite bits and I'd keep them and I'd watch them over and over and over again. Um, so I was always a fan of comedy and I would go over to, cause we lived out in the sticks. We didn't have cable. So I would go over to a friend's house who had HBO and I would tape comedy specials like Howie Mandel or George Carlin. And I would go back and watch those later and watch them over and over and over again. And, uh, gosh, Rodney Dangerfield and, you know, uh, the young comedian special. I remember watching that and seeing people like Kevin Pollack, I think, was on the Young Comedian special. And um, I know Gary Shandling. I don't know if he was a young comedian, but maybe he hosted one of them one year or something like that. He hosted one from Aspen with Dave Attell. There you go. Dave Attell, another hilarious comedian. And that led to what you described as the Fred Rogan break. Yeah. Well, it, it's before that, I thought I was going to write. And so I was editor-in-chief of our school newspaper. And then my senior year of high school, my school TV news program got a, a VHS editing system. And when I learned that you could shoot a scene and edit it and manipulate it later and make it into something and cut out all the pauses and boil it down to its essence and cut a, you know, shoot almost like single camera style where you shoot someone's coverage in one direction, turn the camera the other way and shoot the other way and then edit those together. I was hooked. And then I was like, I want to do TV. And so I went to Washington state where I did 130 episodes of our live sketch comedy show. And that kind of set the hooks. And then when I moved down to LA and got that job writing and producing, um, on with Fred Rogan, um, that was it. I was hooked. I was off and running and, uh, what a ride. (laughs) Hey everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names or some things. And I want you to tell me what comes to your mind. Could be a story, could be a short thing, could be whatever. Tracy Morgan. I love Tracy. He, uh, I lost the voicemail message. He left me one time. But he left me a voicemail saying, Scott, my brother from another mother, what's going on? 
And it was so cool. I wish I still had it. But the very first day I worked with Tracy on scare tactics, none of us had met before. We were shooting in this abandoned warehouse in North Carolina because he was in South Carolina doing a movie at the time. So we found this abandoned warehouse to do our creepy host wraps. And um, we're all kind of feeling each other out. And uh, we do a few intros. And then Tracy pulls me aside and says, Scott, come here. Oh, yeah. And, and he goes, listen, if I do it wrong, make me do it again. And I was like, what? And he said, I want you guys to get what you want. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, cool. Thank you. So from the beginning, Tracy and I had this great, sometimes he would go, Scott, what's the, give me, give me an idea on this line. And he'd sometimes, you know, I'd give him a line reading or sometimes I'd say, Oh, I'd explain it. Here's what I think we're thinking. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Um, so he wasn't, he was comfortable asking, tell me how to say this sometimes. Other times I would go, he's like, how was that one? I go, great. I go, now just do a Tracy take. We just call them Tracy takes. I go, take it, make it your own, put your words into it. And a lot of times the Tracy takes are what we used. Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig was so fantastic. We worked on her. We, um, we did a pilot for CBS that was kind of a scripted, not hidden camera. It was exposed cameras. It was, it was, uh, we basically did cheers in a working Applebee's. So we actually brought Fief Sutton in who used to be a showrunner on cheers and he helped us. And we had this outline for this show. Jake Johansson, who's a very talented comedian was the male lead in the show. Great comedian, great comedian. Kristen Wiig was the female lead in the show. And, um, this was before Saturday night live before all her movies and everything. And she was so damn funny. It was an improvised show. We had an outline for what the story we wanted to do, but every scene we shot in this Applebee's with real customers, Kristen was going up to real customers and, but acting like she was there from corporate to, uh, make sure their experience was uh, going as they planned. So we have a scene that we shot with Kristen and a clipboard, uh, outside the bathroom and she's stopping people as they come out of the bathroom and go, hi, can I talk to you about your experience in the bathroom? And people are like, what? And she's like, yeah, I just, um, did it meet your satisfaction? What would you recommend our bathroom to your friends? <laughs> and it was, it was fun. It was, uh, I, uh, love Kristen. Howie Mandel. I had such a blast working with Howie and, um, Howie's so funny. And so talk about a show. So we created how we, uh, how we do it with Howie Mandel. It went on, it was on NBC for two seasons, 24 episodes. It was an idea we had that we brought to Howie and Howie just made it better. And, um, it was basically, you know, it was exposed cameras, but hidden intentions. People knew they were on reality shows, but then the reality show took a turn or if it, it was an infomercial and it took a turn and, uh, that was unexpected. And then we caught people's honest reactions. Howie wasn't supposed to be on camera for the show that much. He was going to do a few of the bits, but he ended up having so much fun. He was in almost every bit. So when you have Howie in a bit, you can relax because you know, he's going to find something in the outline of what we have planned and he's just going to take it and make it better. And <laughs> the funny thing too, about shooting with Howie is he would ask for a giraffe on the way to set sometimes. I just had an idea. 
we should get a giraffe. And then our production crew would go scrambling, trying to find a giraffe that we could insert into the bit at some point. Um, but I love that about Howie is that he was always trying to figure out how to make things better. Betty White. Betty was amazing. We did Off Their Rockers with Betty White. And if there's anyone in show business who has the right to go, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. This is crap, and I'm not going to say it. It's Betty White. And she is exactly how you think she would be. She's the sweetest, kindest, most self-deprecating person in the world. And we were at a script read-through for her one time, and if there was a intro that she didn't like, she wouldn't say this is crap. She would read it over and she goes, oh dear, I see what you're going for here and it's very funny. I just don't think I can pull it off. How sweet is that? The sweetest way in the world to tell the writers this intro sucks. But she doesn't say this intro sucks. She says, I, I can't, I don't think I can pull it off. And she was tremendous. Wow. What if the writer goes up to her and says, I think you can. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> didn't happen. Wayne Brady. Uh, Wayne and I did a pilot for CBS uh, years ago called Jokes on You, where we turned the prank around on the prankster. And so um, the funny thing about Wayne in that pilot is he came in to do the reveal in one of the bits. And he was just dressed in a suit with black rim glasses. And that was it. That was the extent of his disguise. So we did this bit that was in an office building and our Mark was playing someone who worked for a lottery and they were there to surprise one of the cubicle critters and let him know that he'd won this internet lottery that he'd been playing. Um, and his wife, these are all actors of course, who are in on it, um, was pregnant and she wanted to get her husband and teach him a lesson for playing all these online lotteries and stuff. And so we of course go in and pretend that he's won and the Mark is there to give him a giant check and there's balloons and champagne. And so the boss comes out to see what the commotion is and he congratulates the guy at first. And the guy eventually goes, screw you. I quit. You know, and the Mark is like, no, 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 no. Cause the, it's fake, you know, don't quit. And she thinks it's all real. Wayne comes in as like the vice president from corporate toward the end of the bit to do the reveal. And the woman did not recognize him at all. And she just said, he's like, what's going on here? And she goes, sir, please, this is all my fault. And the Mark took total responsibility. This nice man, his wife's here. She's pregnant. He just quit his job. He didn't mean to. And I feel terrible. And she's on the verge of tears. And then Wayne reveals to her, so you thought you were playing a joke on us. And she said, yes. And she goes, well, the joke's on you. And she's like, what? And he just takes off the glasses. And he goes, I'm Wayne Brady. And she goes, oh, my God, I thought I recognized you. And that was it was like a Clark Kent moment. It was just like glasses, no glasses. And all of a sudden she recognizes Wayne Brady. Um, it was hilarious. Shannon Doherty. Shannon was our first host of Scare Tactics. And I got along so well with Shannon. And we actually did two shows with Shannon. We did Scare Tactics and then we did Breaking Up with Shannon Doherty for Oxygen, um, which was a really cool show. It was if you had someone in your life you wanted to break up with, whether it was a romantic person or a roommate or a toxic family member, Shannon would come in and break the news for you. And she was great at it. Um, she is a total pro. When she shows up on set, we were talking about how many bits didn't work earlier. When I think back to how many intros Shannon did where she flubbed a line or broke or something, 
I mean, it was less than five and she did hundreds of intros. She would read it over in the teleprompter one time. She'd go, okay. And then we'd say action and she would deliver the line perfectly. And then we just go look at each other and kind of like, okay, we'll do another one for safety, I guess. I mean, she just perfect every time reading it over once perfect inflection, got everyone's name, right? Like we just blasted through the intros with her, uh, so quickly. And so, per- I mean, she just, she had such a good creepy vibe that she brought and, and kind of sinister. Um, I don't want to say Shannon's creepy. I'm, I'm saying that she read the line in a way that was very sinister, that really worked for what she was doing. Emmy award, Emmy award. I want a college Emmy. I won an Emmy. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to go to Washington state university and the Edward R Murrow school of communication at a time when there were a bunch of people who, um, loved doing television. And in fact, it was our full-time job. We kind of, we were so busy doing our TV show. We did a half hour live sketch comedy show called live at eight. And we went live for a half an hour every Friday night at eight o'clock. And it was completely student run. We wrote the sketches. We acted in them. We hung the lights. We put up the sets. We found whatever costumes we could find. You know, we had, it was all students directing it and running the cameras and the audio and everything. And it was such a great experience. That was the start of my 10,000 hours of, of how to do television. And while I was at school, it started my freshman year. So I went, I got involved right away. I was a performer. I was head writer. I was producer eventually. Um, and over the course of my four years there, we did 130 episodes of this live sketch comedy show. And it was tremendous training. And um, we submitted it one year to the, you know, the regional, the college Emmys. And we won a college Emmy for our show, which was really cool and gratifying. It was a truly like a team effort. Michael Ian Black. Oh, he was our first host of... Um, of spy TV. Um, and we had such a fun time with Michael Liam black because the premise of the first season was that there was this roving band of pranksters in this panel van going around and pulling pranks. And so the set of our show was Michael as this kind of secret operative, the mastermind in this van, you know, full of equipment and monitors and stuff that was driving around and, uh, and pranking people. And we got to do so many fun kind of weird intros with Michael Ian black that really, you know, highlighted his sense of humor. Um, uh, he was just uh, a joy to work with. It was fun. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. 
I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. The late Ed McMahon. Ed McMahon is the reason Ed McMahon is the reason that the $25 million hoax worked. We did that bit. No, sorry. It wasn't a bit. It was a show where a young woman had to convince her family that she had won an internet lottery. And it was a, they live not too far from here in Newberry park. Um, it was this young woman and her six younger brothers and mom and dad. And so this young woman was basically pranking all her younger brothers and her mom and dad and making them believe that she'd won this lottery on day one. The first time that the family's involved, she's waiting at their house. Cause she says, well, if I won the lottery says they're going to show up here, um, at 10 o'clock, you know, to, to start shooting with me and, and promote their lottery. So we let it go to be about 10, 15 and they start to think, oh, it's not going to happen. Um, then Ed McMahon comes walking up their driveway and these people flipped out and he's like, is Chrissy here? I'm looking for Chrissy. And of course she's in on it, but the family sees Ed McMahon and they're like, 
this has to be real. Like there, this is, and, and Ed McMahon says, Chrissy, you've won $5 million. And the premise of the show was she wins 5 million. She spends a week turning into the most horrible person on the planet. She spends all the money on herself. And then she spins a big wheel at the end, which lands on 25 million. The family flips out. And then when Ed McMahon hands her the giant check at the end, spoiler alert, she rips it in half and tells him it's, it was all a joke. But on day one, the reason we got the family to day five is because Ed McMahon was there to say, you've won $5 million and the family was in hook, line and sinker. And then Ed went around to each member of the family, her six younger brothers, her mom and her dad, and asked them, what would you do with $5 million? And they all said what they would do. Those became their prizes on day five. The mom wanted a new kitchen. She got a new kitchen. The dad wanted the house paid off. The house was paid off. A couple of the brothers wanted a guitar and a new MacBook. You know, simple, $5 million, and what you say is, I want an electric guitar. Okay, <laughs> you got it. Um, but that's what the younger brothers wanted. So we were able to get all those things that the family wanted as kind of their prize for going through this social experiment. Wow. Justin Timberlake. Justin, I worked with, you know, when he was 12 and I was a kid just out of college. I had the opportunity to write for the new Mickey Mouse Club. I moved to Orlando, Florida for six months and I wrote comedy sketches for Justin, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell, JC Chazez. Um, and it was an amazing experience for a young writer. It was also very challenging writing comedy for Disney because they were very strict about what we could and couldn't do. But one of my favorite things and it's, and you can find it on YouTube. I think if you search for it, it was called Yech breath spray. Y-E-E-C-H. And the premise was Christina and Brittany were in the library and they were 12 or 13 years old, I think, at the time. And the announcer says, it's Friday afternoon and that nerd you've been avoiding all week is approaching you. And oh, no, you have minty fresh breath. What are you going to do? Luckily, there's a solution. And Justin comes up as the nerd and taps Brittany on the shoulder and says, Hi, Brittany. I was wondering if you wanted to go out with, to a movie this weekend. And then she goes, she looks at the camera and winks and she sprays yech breath spray in her mouth and goes, oh, hi, Justin. Yes, I'd love to go to the movies with you and breathes on him. And of course, he goes, "Ooh, have you been drinking curdled milk and skunk sweat or something? Blah. And he goes running off and a burgeoning romance was started. I think that's why Brittany and Justin got together in their in their younger life. It's amazing that when you think about it, that you were there as a young writer and I mean, you just mentioned like Look at the talent. four yeah. or five of the biggest stars in entertainment Yep, started at the Mickey Mouse Club. Yep. It was incredible. And Who all did? the kids could sing and dance and act. They were all triple threats. And I remember the producer bringing in um, Christina's audition tape where she was singing a Whitney Houston song. And he's like, hey, you guys got to check this out. He put it in, and this little girl, 12-year-old girl standing there, skinny as a rail, maybe weighs 50 pounds, soaking wet. And she's got this soulful voice that we're like, "Where is this dubbed? Where's that coming from? And it's like, no, no, that's, that's coming from her. And she sang this Whitney Houston song better than Whitney Houston. And we're like, wow. And that was Christina Aguilera. Who knew that the Mickey Mouse Club was like Saturday Night Live for musical entertainers? It was. Fred Rogan. I love Fred. Fred gave me my first job 
in Hollywood. Basically I was, a I and, and because of my experience in college and you always like to say connections, right? Um, my friends who I went to college with and worked on live at eight, there were some of them who graduated a couple of years ahead of me and came down to LA. And thanks to that, I don't think I would have thought to come to LA because you know, in school we were trained to do television news. So I might've stayed in the Northwest and, you know, done television news or something, but because my friends moved down to Southern California and started finding their way into entertainment, I decided when I graduated to come down and my friend Tina was working for Rogan's heroes and they loved her so much. And she was so good. Um, she had been a director on, on live at eight and she was super talented at directing this live show. And, um, she was so good on the show that, uh, they were like, uh, Fred and his partner, Phil, they wanted to meet Tina's friends. And so they ended up hiring three of us who all went besides Tina, who all went to Washington state together to be writers and producers on Fred's show. And it was a funniest home videos type show where we were taking funny blooper clips, but then we were taking them and we would make commercial parodies out of them. Or, you know, we would make fake products or, you know, stuff like that. We would do a little bit more than just show a series of clips. And it was the greatest experience because here I am a kid fresh out of college and I'm writing this national comedy show and I, and I couldn't believe it. And, and Fred was so gracious with his, with his time and with his kind of trying to give me some advice as a youngster starting out. David Letterman. Working with Fred gave me the opportunity to meet David Letterman in the halls outside the tonight show. When I first came to Hollywood, it was Johnny Carson's last year hosting the tonight show. And I own a cue card from oh, one of his last shows. It's wow. hanging in my house. Yeah. It was an amazing time to be here. The last Fechner joke I have on the cue card <laughs> and all the people coming through and paying their respects, Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams and all, all these people, Bette Midler, all these people were around there. And 1992. Yeah. 91, 92. Yeah. And, um, I, a friend of mine and I bought some NBC promotional posters late night and it had Johnny Carson and, and David Letterman standing back to back, you know, in this promotional poster. And so because I worked in the building, I did, I was a kid. I didn't know any better and probably a good thing I didn't. I just walked down to Johnny Carson's office and talked to his assistant and I said, hi, my name's Scott. I work in the building. You know, I have a huge fan. Would you mind, would Johnny mind signing this poster for me? And he was kind enough to do it. And he was very gracious and nice. And he signed to Scott, best wishes, Johnny Carson. And you got to meet him? Yes, br briefly. And, and that was the other cool thing about working in the building is they didn't mind if we snuck into the studio and watched rehearsals. So I would watch him rehearse comedy bits. And the fascinating thing for our audience about Johnny, and I presume that he did this at the end, he had this, I don't even know what you'd call it, this long railing on the set where all the cue cards were sitting. Yep. And once he finished a joke, they'd move them down. Yep. And there's only one show now that uses cue cards that I know of, and that's Saturday Night Live. Yep. Still uses them, tried and true. But um, it was such a great experience to be a kid. You know, I grew up on a farm in Washington state, you know, I'm like, I'm more of a farm boy than, than a Hollywood guy. And to come down there and be on the same set where Johnny Carson is rehearsing the bits that he's going to do on the tonight show that night was mind blowing. And so 
met him. He signed the poster. And then when Letterman came to kind of do one of the last episodes, I waited for Dave and I met Dave afterwards. And I said, Mr. Letterman, huge fan. Would you mind signing this? Johnny signed it. And I would love to have your signature as well. He goes, Oh, sure. I go, I'm a big fan. You've brought me so much joy over the year. And in typical Letterman style, he goes, Oh, well, I doubt that. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, no, you absolutely have. And, uh, Johnny signed the poster to the side of his head. Letterman signed it with Sharpie right over his face. And he just wrote the same thing that Johnny did to Scott best wishes, David Letterman right over his face, Dave's face, not Johnny's face. Wow. Yes. Ralphie may Ralphie was such a big, big heart and a big talent. And it's so sad that he's gone. Um, and he was actually on, he was one of our actors. Talk about, actors who have to be good actors he was on spy tv which was a prank show we did for nbc and ralphie was in a bit we did called fat valet and <laughs> ralphie played a valet at gladstones on the beach right on pch and people would pull up in their car and then ralphie no matter how big the car was ralphie would act like he couldn't get into it and he said, is this some kind of, does this special order? Did you make this smaller or, and he's like, I, I just, I can't get in. Is there, can you put the seat all the way back? And they'd put the seat all the way back and he'd, uh, he'd get stuck in the doorway. I, are you sure what's going on with this thing? And uh, people would eventually, and he goes, all right, I'm going to get in as far as I can. And I want you to run and just, and just push and you push and you put your, you just put your hand on my gut and just push gut until you get me all the way in. And people would run and push <laughs> Ralphie and he still couldn't get in there. And he'd be like, please, I'm going to lose my job. If I can't, if I can't park your car, please don't, don't. And, the, and people would be like, I think we got to get a different valet. And the punchline of course was, all right, all right, let me, Steve, come on over here. And the next guy who came in was like seven feet tall <laughs> and he couldn't fit in their car either. And then he would be same thing. Is this a special car? Is this a clown car or something? Like what? It was very funny. Ralphie was. And then the 28 inch guy would come <laughs> in. We didn't add Gabriel to it, but we should have. That's a good punch. We'll have to do that one. Jimmy and John DeResta. Of course, you introduced me to Jimmy and John. Um, we worked with them on a show called Trash to Cash for FX, which is the perfect show for Jimmy and John DeResta. They've been trying to do that show. They've done different iterations of that show ever since we first did it because it's it involves their passions, right? John loves, he and Jimmy grew up dumpster diving and, you know, uh, finding yard sale reject things on the sidewalk and taking them home and making them into something beautiful. John loves to find old wood and turn it into tables and, and all this stuff. And Jimmy is just just the super talent at fabricating and making something out of nothing. So we did this show called Trash to Cash, where people basically, the premise of the show was, clients came to John and Jimmy with a problem. We had a couple of friends who needed to throw a bachelor party for their buddy. They wanted to throw it in Vegas but they didn't have any money. So could John and Jimmy bring Vegas to them for $75? Talk about a dollar and a dream. <laughs> uh, so these guys give all John and Jimmy all the money in their wallets. And then John, of course, has some hilarious put down about why they only have 75 bucks between them. But then they take their money and then they basically, John and Jimmy go dumpster diving and they create this amazing 
we came back to their house a week later and we made over their living room for a bachelor party and Jimmy had made, you know, a craps table out of an old bed frame and we made a bar out of some old wood that John found on the side of the road. We reupholstered their couch with this leopard print, you know, um, uh, fabric that we were able to find somewhere and John went to it like a secondhand store and got a deal on it. Um, and this room looked amazing. And we even, Jimmy even built a stripper pole and we and hired a stripper, of course, for the bachelor party. $935.60 exactly. in tips. Yes, in tips. Tips were hers to keep, but she did get after scale for sure. Um, but, you know, I love those guys and, and I had a blast working with you. That's how you and I first got to know first each other. First time we ever executed, produced something together. Yeah. Your proudest moment in show business proudest moment is probably when we were doing how we do it with Howie Mandel and we shot all the pranks ahead of time. We shot the pranks first and then to shoot the host wraps where Howie would introduce all the bits. We um, used the, the Caesars casino in Windsor, Ontario. We were shooting the show. We shot all the pranks up in Toronto and then we needed a location in, in, uh, Canada to shoot the, the host wraps. Um, and so we ended up shooting at Caesars Windsor to a crowd of about 5,000 people. And we were playing back the bits that we had shot and that I'd overseen a lot of the, the editing of all the bits to get them ready and to put your work up in front of 5,000 people and have them laugh was so gratifying. And the thing that made it a proud moment was I was able to, I flew my family in. So my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my sister-in-law, they were able to come and sit in the audience of those 5,000 people with a good kind of almost front row seat and see what I was doing and see me off to the side, see me going up, consulting with Howie between takes, coming up with jokes and punches and ways to introduce things and then going off and being behind the scenes again. And it was so gratifying to have my family there and sharing in that moment and enjoying and seeing uh, the show come together and that this huge crowd laugh, 5,000 people laugh at what you did. Um, and the nice thing I'll recommend about shooting a show in front of an audience of 5,000 people is later when you're going and putting the shows together and the network says, I don't think this bit's that funny. You can, we recorded the audio, of course, of the crowd and we'd say, well, I think 5,000 people found it pretty funny. Listen, you know, and they listen back to it and they're like, all right, you're right. It was like instant, instant audience testing. Nice. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment we talked about a little bit, um, was who's your daddy on Fox not working because what it taught me is that it's not enough to do a good show there's got to be some other magic that gets people to find the show or whatever. But we were so proud of that show and the way it worked out and the way that people, it, it has kind of salacious sounding premise, but at its core, it really had its heart in the right place. It was really about reuniting people who wanted to be reunited. And Mike Darnell believed in the show and we believed in the show so much. And when it launched and then I got the call the next morning from Mike that it didn't work. Oh, I was just crushing because we really thought this was it. This was going to, this show is going to go out there. It's going to make some noise and people are going to latch onto this and it's going to become the next big thing. 
and it didn't and it was and it was tough but there were good good lessons to be learned from there like you said to kind of fuel and so it just made us you know work harder work harder and throw your all into every project because you don't know which one is going to work and people are going to latch on to and it's and it's not enough. And sometimes, you know what? The work itself is is the reward. It would have been nice if it was popular. It would have been nice if it got huge ratings. But the work was really rewarding. There's certain things you have no control over when you're doing television. And I'm just one person. And I love you and I love your work. And I know why I didn't watch that show for one frame. Because of the name. Mm-hmm. who's your daddy it's like a play on words they're trying to make a joke in the title right when it was a show that had a heart yeah so with the title took away all the heart and made it like a parody of itself and so to me that you're not in control of that the network sometimes can change the name of your show and that's happened to me many times you're right and and there was so much controversy before the show came out because they heard the name they heard the premise it was about reuniting kids adopted at birth with their parents and people were turned off i think by the title and the weird thing is that once it aired there was zero criticism no one said how dare you people said oh this is actually kind of sweet and we cried. I cried in the edit bays putting the shows together because the reunions were so incredible and amazing. And everyone on the show really appreciated meeting their birth parent the way they met them because it took the pressure off. It wasn't, you're going to meet each other at a Starbucks or in a restaurant. Hi, I'm your dad. Now what? It gave them something to talk about. What percentage of the contestants chose their real father in the first try we i can't remember because there was eliminations there was we went from eight to four to two to one they could never eliminate their real birth parent and we did moms too we did who's your mommy um and i think <laughs> out of i th- i can't remember if we, i think we did eight episodes and two kids chose incorrectly at the end where they had two to choose from And one of them was so shocking because the daughter looked exactly like her birth mom. And on night number one, Finola Hughes was the host of that show. And Finola was fantastic. And the Finola's sitting with the daughter and they're watching the moms, you know, have a cocktail party and there's cameras in there and they don't know the daughter's watching them. And the daughter's talking to Finola and she freezes and Finola goes, what's wrong? And she said, this woman just did something where she brushed her hair back and it's exactly the way I do it. She looked just like me when she did that. And it was her mom. And this was on night one. And we're like, well, this is going to be, this isn't going to be exciting. This, she's got it all figured out. At the end, she chose wrong. She didn't trust her instincts. She chose the wrong woman. And we couldn't believe it. Um, but at the end, you know, even when they chose, choose wrong, they make their choice and then a door opens and their real mom walks out. So right or wrong, they're reunited with their birth parent at that moment. And it's so great. And people, when people chose wrong, they didn't care. They were just happy. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up on a farm in Washington with no cable and having to do talent shows, imitating Abbott and Costello? And to get to the point where they follow their dreams and get out of their area and create magic and originality in the kind of show 
and shows that you've produced and have the kind of career that you've had. It's almost, uh, I think, a piece of advice that I've heard you give people before, which is if you had your health and money was no object, what would you do? And if show business, if writing, if directing, if producing, if being a camera person, if being a photographer, if that's the thing that drives you, that you love, that's your passion, that gets you to jump out of bed in the morning, then do it. And early on, the nice thing about the world today is the barrier to entry is almost non-existent. If you've got an idea, the technology's out there for you to shoot and edit something that looks probably amazing. And you know what, if it's a great script, it doesn't have to look totally amazing. Just the fact that you go and do it is the important thing. That's the important part of the exercise. So go and do, whether it's joining, you know, Groundlings or the Acme Comedy Theater or UCB, something like that, just get on your feet and, and do something, even if you're not getting paid for it, especially if you're not getting paid for it. Just keep doing it and keep creating. And the people that you meet in those classes, are the connections, and that's another thing you talk about, those are the connections that are gonna feed your career later. You know, you look at a lot of people who work together that, together these days, like the Cohen brothers or, or, you know, Lorne Michaels and the Saturday Night Live group and Adam Sandler, like he's always hiring people that he's worked with before, that he's comfortable with, in some cases, childhood friends, just people that they've known because they have a comfort and they know that that person then can deliver. They're not, by the way, they're not going to just hire their friends. If they suck, you have to bring something to the table. So, you know, make sure again, your word undeniable, make sure you're undeniable when you are working on these projects and you will, you will not be denied. Um, and just keep doing it no matter what. And don't be afraid to take a job, whatever the job is, to keep the dream going. I was a writer for Fred Rogan, for the Mouse Club, and I got into the Writers Guild, I got an agent, I figured, I got this figured out, I'm good, and obviously my agent is looking for work for me, so I got this covered, this is fine, and then a year goes by <laughs> of not working, you're like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta pay the rent, <laughs> I gotta do something. And I ended up taking a job as an assistant writer, assistant to the writers, to the executive producers on Diagnosis Murder, the Dick Van Dyke show. And it was a great experience because even being a writer's assistant, you're especially on comedy shows, you're exposed to the room, you're exposed to the process. It's great training if you want to be a writer, to be a writer's assistant. Um, but be undeniable, be good. If you're supposed to be taking notes and if they throw out a joke and you don't have the joke written down, you're not making yourself a value to that executive producer into that process. So make sure if you're a PA on a show, be the best damn PA they've ever had on scare tactics in season two, people who were PAs were segment producers people who were segment producers the year before or writers were directors on season two. So we promoted from within. If you come in and you kick ass at no matter what the job is, you're going to get noticed and you're going to move up. So always be kicking ass. Scott Halleck. Fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me in your home. My pleasure. And it was a true pleasure and an honor. You're an amazing guy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Cool PR Maven, May 15, 2019. Heading reads, every episode's a winner, five stars. The comment reads, Barry has a sense of curiosity that benefits the listener. He drills deep and unearths insights, info, and perspective not found elsewhere. Plus, he clearly has a vast Rolodex because his guests run deep, from headliners to producers and more. My faves are his interviews with comedians, and when I die, I want Barry to write my obituary because his introductions put federal dossiers to shame. Pick an interview with someone you admire, and it will be the best podcast listening experience ever. Wow. Thank you so much, cool PR maven. You are a winner. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again and i killed jfk the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing kennedy go to ikilljfk.com buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts and i guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Adam Trent. You got to stay naive and just be willing to... To take a swing at stuff, you know, like my, my roommate uh, many years ago, David, the magician, uh, he always talked about the stuff that he learned from from like from from just watching me do stuff. Where he's like, "You can't just do that," and I'm like, "Well, I know, I, I just did it. Like, you can't just make a sizzle on your camera and edit it together and go in and show it to networks. Like, you can't just rent out a middle school theater and do a show. You can't just like." film a dance recital with you doing a magic trick and call it a production show and sell it to a cruise. Like you can't just you know, like, but you can. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been industry standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You'll get out. 
fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.